So good evening to you all. Guess what we're going to talk about tonight? It's going to have something to do with fill in the blank. Concentration. So I'm going to explore uh, three different themes if we have the time to do this. And I'm going to start with the theme of what's the value of concentration practice? And in particular, how does it fit into the Buddha's teachings? How does it fit into his whole scheme, his system of explanation of how things work? So maybe we should start by becoming conscious of why you would want to have the capacity for concentration in daily life. I mean, why would you want that? And when I I think about this, some obvious examples come to mind. So for instance, if you were interested in being able to focus at work, study without uh, drifting away into distraction, be present for an important conversation with a, a partner or someone who means something to you. If you are looking to uh, keep your mind on a particular stream of thought and follow it through to some sort of reasoned conclusion, or if you wanted to keep at any task in a non-distracted kind of way, you have to have some kind of capacity for concentration to actually be able to connect with something and have the mind stay there to cooperate, uh, to cooperate and settle into the task or the exploration at hand. With this quality, we can maintain awareness through the flow of what we're experiencing, not losing connection, not losing uh, the thread of what's happening. And with it, we have some capacity to actually direct the mind to choose where we're going to place attention and keep it there. So we have choice of what we attend to. Some freedom in that. And if you think about it, you know, most people who are great musicians or great athletes, uh, scientists, folk of that nature, artists, or another group Marcia mentions with this, have some sort of developed capacity for concentration. And the version that uh, is often present with people of that type is the capacity to concentrate or really connect with, become absorbed with, stay with things that they find interesting. Things that they find interesting in particular in a way that's pleasant. But it's not necessarily transferable to other areas of life. So for instance, while someone might be Uh, have the kind of concentration that will allow them to um, stay with a basketball game and all the passes and moves and the moves of all the other players and, you know, make split-second decisions and responses and, you know, find their way into the basket. Uh, That kind of skill set, that kind of concentration, that kind of presence and collectedness of mind doing that task doesn't necessarily transfer into other endeavors. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be uh, tuned in or particularly uh, interested in being tuned in, say, to uh, a conversation with uh, a fan or in uh, balancing their checkbook or something. So there's not a not necessarily uh, a capacity that's fully developed. It's present when there's interest 
uh, and there's practice in that particular kind of area. But it's not necessarily fully developed. So a question comes up then, when we talk about concentration and Buddhist practice and the development of this particular quality of mind, what are we really talking about? Are we talking about something that's essentially the same as the kind of concentration uh, a scientist has when they're uh, really being present and uh, uh, you know, running a computer program that has to do with the results of their experiment? Or are we talking about something that's different, that has uh, different features to it? So there is a particular context that's very much a part of what we're doing here and learning to do here that informs our understanding about what we're talking about when we're talking about concentration within this system. And this particular system talks about concentration as being part of and informed by the Buddha's core teachings, the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So let me just do a survey here at this point and ask how many people here are familiar with these teachings. Okay, so... Yeah, maybe about half of folk. And if if I was going to say, uh, uh, give me the Eightfold Path, how many people could like rattle that one off? Okay. Or maybe maybe you know like, you know, three of the eight or something, but not in the right order. But you have an idea, you have a sense of it, right? So just to review for for everybody. The Four Noble Truths of the Buddha are basically his problem statement. First of all, the First Noble Truth, there is dukkha, there is suffering, there is stress, there is difficulty, there is unsatisfactoriness as part of human existence. The Second Noble Truth is there is a cause of this suffering, stress, unsatisfactoriness that's part of human experience. And the cause of that is craving born of ignorance, a kind of not knowing that translates into um, an active misunderstanding of how things really are and how things really work. Uh, That's bound up with wanting things to be in a way that they can't be and in attempting to exercise a certain kind of control over things that is actually not possible given the span of our agency. The third noble truth uh, basically says that there is uh, a path uh, into suffering with the abandonment of craving and the path to the the, uh, waking up of the mind to the end of suffering is the Eightfold Path, which is a way of saying the Eightfold Path path is the the formula or the prescription for how we can actually come out of this state of active misknowing and the suffering that's part of it and uh, resolve this for ourselves through our own self-effort. So it's the program for doing this. The kind of concentration that we're developing and practicing here is very much informed by the the understanding of the Four Noble Truths and by the Eightfold Path itself. And the Eightfold Path, which is the the formula formula or prescription, as I just said, uh, has wise concentration as its seventh step. Now that's an interesting way I just put it. Wise concentration. So that sort of suggests that There's also unwise concentration, or maybe not so wise, but not so unwise concentration. But there's something specific that's being talked about when uh, the word wise or wisdom is associated with this particular quality of mind. 
So a way to understand the Eightfold Path is it's kind of a hologram, meaning that every one of the eight steps of it uh, are informed by the others and reflect the understanding of the other steps in some kind of, of way. So it's a totality that has different facets. So entering into the practice of the Eightfold Path, uh, the first step has to do with knowing the Four Noble Truths, having what is called wise view, basically an orienting principle of how things are, what's going on, and what this practice thing is all about. The second step, wise intention, has to do with what we've been talking about here in the instructions, attitudinal wisdom. The understanding that what we're trying to cultivate on the relational level and in terms of our attitude towards ourselves is loving kindness and compassion. And that additionally, the other thing that we're trying to to take on as an orienting principle is something called renunciation, which is basically an understanding that the, the, the point of experience is not taking sense pleasure as an orienting value, that there's something else that needs to be an orienting value other than just going for what's pleasant all the time, taking that as the be-all and end-all of our human life and the standard of our decision-making. And then the next three steps in the Eightfold Path are basically something that we've talked about quite a bit on this retreat, which is sila, or ethical restraint, uh, basic moral behavior, uh, right, right speech or wise speech, uh, wise action, um, and wise livelihood. So these roughly parallel the precepts that we took at the beginning of the retreat. You know, non-killing, non-lying, non-stealing, restraint from the use of intoxicants, not misusing sexual energy, not making a living in a way that exploits uh, others or causes harm. Um, You know, watching what you what comes out of the mouth, and so that doesn't uh, stir things up or misrepresent things. So that's the seal of piece of it. And then the next pieces are uh, wise effort, wise effort, and then wise concentration, and then wise mindfulness. The last three, all having to do uh, directly to uh, meditative trainings and efforts. So when we're talking about wise concentration, all these other things are in in play in some sort of way and informing what this is. So this is a, a system, a whole system for the development of heart and mind, moving us in the direction of liberation from the kind of deep misunderstanding that causes discretionary human suffering. And that's the point of this whole endeavor. So we develop concentration as part of this effort towards self-liberation, and we use it as a tool to accomplish that goal. And that goal is to clarify our perceptions and understanding so that we can uh, release our deluded understanding, and to cultivate wholesome states of mind. So in other words, we use it to support our own emancipation, our own freedom. And in order to do that, we have to, have to develop it in a way that's in accord with the rest of the Eightfold Path. So you know, if we were going to look at what that means specifically, it means that the kind of concentration that we're developing and the way we're developing it is bound up in wisdom. Wisdom being a clear seeing, a discernment into what leads to what. What's wholesome, what's 
not wholesome, meaning what leads to suffering and what leads to liberation from suffering. And we direct the concentration towards the development of wholesome states of mind, meaning states of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or if we're going to use positive language for it, states of generosity, uh, loving kindness, and wisdom. And this is always accompanied by mindfulness, which is the eighth step on um, the Eightfold Path which is a wholesome, uh, receptive, present tense, knowing quality of mind that's free from the five hindrances that we've talked so much about. It's free from those five hindrances of uh, craving, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. It's a mirror-like quality of, of the mind that knows what it's experiencing at the time that it's experiencing it without resistance, without resentment. But it's present and it knows what's happening as it's happening. And this wise concentration contains within it renunciation. And as you've seen from your own efforts in trying to stay with the little spot... In order to do that, you have to let go of a lot of things, right? Basically, you have to let go of everything else except just the sensations there. As best you can, you have to just keep letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. So another way of exploring this is to say that the kind of concentration that we're cultivating has within it or accompanying it, many other wholesome factors of mind besides just this one-pointedness or non-distractedness. And it lacks unwholesome wholesome aspects. So it's wholesome in and of itself, and it's used to cultivate insight and other wholesome states. So it's a tool. A tool. So... One of the questions that often comes up at some point on a retreat, this, this comes, has come up, I think, at every three-month retreat I've ever either been on or taught at. And at some point in the retreat, somebody raises their hand and says, um, some version of this question, you know, does a, does a cat burglar, or sometimes it's a sniper, does a cat burglar or a sniper have uh, mindfulness uh, uh, or in concentration, right? And you can see where the question is coming from, right? Because our, our understanding is, well, in order to be a really good cat burglar, like to be able to enter into an art museum or something, right? Right through all the systems and all the people who are guarding it, you know, and be able to keep your cool and not, not attract attention and not set anything off and, you know, be able to figure it all out and get the paintings and wrap them up and, you know, get them out to the van that you've planned. I mean, you, there has to be some concentration there, right? I mean, that's, that's a job. That's not just like, oh, I think I'll go down and steal some stuff today, right? I mean, there has to be a lot of focus, a lot of complete presence, a lot of containment there. But, but could we say that that's concentration in the way that we mean it within this system? And the answer would be no. Because in addition, there is the one-pointedness, perhaps. There is the non-distraction, perhaps. But also accompanying that are a lot of unwholesome factors, right? There's the, the, the craving for the thing. There's the, the, the taking of what belongs to somebody else. There's the, uh, the, the, yeah, the willingness to break the law. There's the, there's, there's a lot in there, right? A lot of bad uh, moral decision making. So, yeah. So it's a different thing, but not wise concentration. So this wise concentration that arises within the Eightfold Path uh, 
has within it the cultivation, the actual cultivation of sila and morality and the attitudes of loving kindness and compassion. It's accompanied by wisdom and mindfulness and it strengthens these. It has the ability to actually strengthen these factors. It magnifies them. It makes them more known. So you can see it's not a standalone thing. It's part of a whole system of cultivation and development, which is the full path. It's intended to be part of this process of orienting the human heart and mind towards happiness and towards liberation. But interestingly enough, Concentration, even wise concentration alone, is not enough. So even if, it, if concentration is lacking like bad sila or something else, if, if it weren't hooked up to the other elements in the, uh, the Buddha's teaching, if, it w- if the other elements weren't uh, cultivated along with concentration, It's not going to be enough to tip the mind uh, in the direction of the actual end goal of the teachings. The Buddha himself, as part of his career, (laughs) spent many years studying with the most renowned concentration masters of the day. He had two different teachers And each one of these men was uh, a very highly realized concentration master in his own right. And the Buddha went to each one of them in turn and learned everything that they had to teach about concentration. And he developed a very high degree of mastery of what they had to teach. In fact, he got to a point where his mastery of their teachings was better than theirs. And in each case, they basically offered him control of the, the school. You know, they bowed down to him and said, please, take the, take the chair, take the teaching seat. You know, you, you know it. And in both cases, he turned his powerfully concentrated mind internally and looked and because he was an honest man uh, above all other things, said, it's not done. This suffering and source of suffering, it's not eliminated. This hasn't completed the work that needs to be done in order for my mind to be completely liberated. So concentration by itself doesn't do it. But nevertheless, it's a necessary and essential, but not sufficient tool. And it's a very powerful tool, especially when it's strongly developed. So let's take a look at the framework of meditation. how this meditation thing uh, fits into the, the teachings and, um, and clarify some things about that. There have been a number of questions about this particular point uh, related to, well, what's Vipassana and what's Shamatha and how do they fit together? Do they fit together? And are they the same thing or are they a different thing? And you know, which one should you practice first and all of that. So with, within the Buddhist trainings, meditative trainings, there's two main branches. Right? There's the branch which trains wisdom primarily and the branch which trains tranquility or uh, concentration. So first, let's talk about the wisdom branch, because a lot of the people who are here 
for this retreat actually have their experience, their previous meditative experience and training in Vipassana. How many of you have done Vipassana or insight practice before you came here? Okay. And how many of you uh, have did concentration practice before? Okay. Much smaller number. So let's talk about Vipassana first. Vipassana or insight practice, this is also known as mindfulness meditation. Uh, A very simplified version of this is the uh, underlying framework for mindfulness-based stress reduction and cognitive behavioral therapy and, and those kinds of things. But Vipassana or insight practice is a wisdom practice. So with that... Mindfulness is cultivated first. That's why they call it mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness is cultivated first. Concentration is also developed in the process of doing mindfulness meditation. If, if you remember one of the lists you may have heard of the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment, Concentration is one of them. But uh, for concentration to arrive in strength in Vipassana practice usually takes a while. Generally speaking, unless it's already strongly developed in the individual's mind, it comes online late. You know, usually you have to go through a progression. It's not linear, but, you know, often it's mindfulness. And then once mindfulness is established, then there's investigation, meaning the mind turns towards being curious about what's going on, actually looking for this, the specifics. And uh, from that comes um, a rapture and energy. And then there's uh, calm, uh, concentration, and then equanimity. So you see concentration there is like... Uh, the car right before the caboose. Now, in Vipassana, the mind is turned towards knowing things as they are, as they arise, and in particular, turning, once awareness is well established, turning the mind towards the knowing of what are called the three characteristics, meaning the impermanence of everything that can be experienced, the ultimate unsatisfactory nature of everything that can be experienced, at least in part because it's unstable, it's impermanent. And then the third element of realizing that there's, there's not a, a self in it, that there's not a self in the thing that's permanent, there's not a permanent, unchanging self that's watching the things, that the self-concept really doesn't apply to anything that we can experience. So the, the mind is really turned towards seeing that those three characteristics of uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self over and over and over and over and over again in every single thing that can arise and be known. Seeing that again and again and again and again. And at a certain point, the mind be able, starts to be able, after it goes through phases of not liking this at all, not liking this at all, looking around desperately to find something that is at variance with this experience because it, it seems at certain points to be very threatening. But finally, after it goes through its song and dance and resistance to this, uh, this uh, insight it finally goes, well, okay, I guess, uh, I guess I'm not in control. And it starts to let go. It starts to let go, and it starts to let go, and it starts to realize, oh, this is really the better way to go. This letting go thing, this is not defeat. This is harmonizing with the truth of how things really are. This is less suffering. This is way less suffering. And by the way, things are getting much clearer now that I'm no no longer fighting with things. Oh, things are getting much clearer, and now I really see why it's futile to fight with things. Now I understand why letting go, allowing, 
is, is the path. And over time, the mind starts to find acceptable the arising and passing away of everything, which is a really good thing because it's happening anyway. So it's kind of nice to lay down the objection since there's really no uh, possibility of enforcing uh, the inclination to uh, uh, run at cross-purposes to it. And when the mind uh, is able to do that at deeper and deeper, deeper levels at at a certain point, the mind is able to completely let go of that, and that's from a state of deep equanimity and deep acceptance and deep connection. That's where classic enlightenment experiences can happen. So it's a wisdom practice. So in order for the, the mind to see things at that deep a level, that continuously, that closely, there needs to be concentration. So this quality we've been developing of being able to turn the mind to something and have it stay there, to continually observe, to be with what's actually happening uh, without the hindrances, to knowing being present, you can see how concentration, uh, strongly developed concentration is a very powerful tool and support in doing mindfulness practice. So that's a crossover piece for you. So an image for this is you could say that um, developing concentration by doing shamatha practice is a little bit like doing weight training to play football. So it supports the capacity to do the practice by bringing that steadiness and non-distraction It also helps to calm the mind. It helps to suppress the hindrances. And once the hindrances are suppressed, then you can see more and more clearly. So the Buddha says, develop concentration for one who is concentrated sees things as they really are. Sees things as they really are, which is another way of saying the end of delusion the end of that kind of act of misunderstanding of how things are that I described earlier as what the Buddha says is the source of discretionary human suffering. The act of misunderstanding of how things really are and the craving that gets bound up in that and the struggle, the futile struggling that comes from it. So that's about Vipassana and how concentration fits into that. So let's talk a little bit about shamatha, the second major branch of meditative training. So this is, that's basically what we've been practicing over the last few days, <laughs> much to the surprise of some of you, but, but that's what we've been doing. So... With this kind of practice, the mind focuses on a single object or a single uh, task and keeps itself there. It remains with that one thing. So here we're developing concentration as a primary objective along with tranquility. But there are also other wholesome states of mind that are being cultivated as part of this. So if you notice when I gave the meditation instructions this morning, one of the things that that I talked about was when you're going to the breath, that it was very useful to have uh, some tranquility in the mind and some loving kindness and goodwill in the mind towards the breath, right? to not be fault-finding, about it, to let it be how it was, to not think it shouldn't be rougher, it should be slower or whatever, to, you know, just, to, just to allow it. I mean, that, that's a representation of uh, loving kindness as being part of the, uh, and acceptance as being part of the attitude that 
is also arising a in the cultivation of this particular quality of mind. So the two most commonly practiced forms of concentration meditation are the one we've been doing, which is mindfulness of the breath at the Anapana spot. And the second one is the practice of the Brahma Viharas, the practice of what are called the divine abidings or the heavenly abodes. How many people know about them, have heard about those before? Okay. A little smaller number than have some familiarity with uh, Vipassana practice. So I'm going to talk about this this for a while because this, this is a really powerful and important practice which can completely transform your life. That's a strong statement. <laughs> That's a strong It's a more powerful than a thigh master. <laughs> okay. So Remember I said the the second of the steps on the eightfold path is wise intention. And I said it had to do with the cultivation of loving kindness and the cultivation of compassion as well as the cultivation of renunciation. These Brahma Vihara practices, Brahma Vihara uh, or heavenly abodes is kind of the generic term for the four practices, refers to this idea that the mind can actually learn to dwell, which is another way of saying have uh, easy access to, have as a uh, available uh, shelter uh, these particular attitudes and mind states which are composed of first metta or loving kindness. The second of these is karuna or compassion. The third is mudita which is translated as Uh, empathetic joy or sympathetic joy, joy, happiness at the happiness of others. And the last being uh, upekka, equanimity, stability of mind, balance of mind. These meditations allow us to directly cultivate these particular states, these wholesome states, to actually plant the seeds for their future arising by learning how to form the intention um, that these states arise. This is a very powerful practice because you can see it gives us a tool to actually be able to shape the direction our mind evolves, which is a very different thing from the untrained mind whose mind mostly goes in the direction of whatever the dominant existent conditioning is. This is true for all of our minds. Our minds will go, continue in the direction of whatever our dominant existing condition is unless we do some kind of training to point the compass in a direction that we find is going to lead to our happiness and well-being and our deeper satisfaction. So uh, for any of us who struggle with states that many of us in the West struggle with, including self-hatred, self-judgment, just all of the suffering states, basically all of the suffering psycho-emotional states are addressed in the practice of the Brahma-viharas. So if you're interested in having a mind that has more access to loving kindness, more access to compassion, more access to uh, happiness when other people are happy, more access to a kind of uh, stability that isn't easily thrown off by uh, events in your daily life, 
then these are practices uh, to do. And the basic method of these practices is uh, there's a structured way of doing them. There's a lot of different ways to do them. Some very creative things can be done with these practices that where you kind of feel your way along and uh, modify the practice or bring in elements that, that intuitively you feel resonate the best for you. But the basic structure of these practices is you form the intention to, uh, of goodwill, say, by offering a, per, a particular phrase that re- represents uh, the wish. So when we do the meta chant, uh, when we're singing along in pa- Pali, if you look at the English side of that, you'll see the translation of classic meta phrases. It has, has things like... Uh, May you be free from danger. May you be free from mental suffering. May you be free from physical suffering. May you be well and happy. And in the internal recitation of those phrases over and over again, in connection to, say, for instance, a felt sense of yourself, your own body sitting, or a visual image of yourself, or, an, say, an image of yourself as a small child, uh, you know, before the wrecking ball came along, or um, or an image of a, another person um, that's dear to you, you offer that wish. You offer that wish with the, the mind that wishes for the well-being of another, wishes for your own happiness. This isn't magical thinking, but it's the practice of the if-it-were-up-to-me mind, right? If it were up to me, may you all be happy. I would want it. Right? So we practice this phrase, practice this intention over and over again. There's a way of, of progressing from, you start these practices usually with the, where it's easiest. So you would start where it's fairly easy to feel goodwill towards somebody, you know, somebody you approve of unconditionally. You know, maybe it's your dog. Maybe that's the easiest place. That's where you would start. But the the progression of the training is you would go from where it's easiest and then over time as you built up momentum and the mind got stronger, which is another way of saying the concentration deepened. The concentration deepened to be able to continue to generate these phrases and maintain an image of the being you would later extend that in turn to people who become progressively more difficult. Right? You, so you start where it's easy and then you move to where it's, yeah, somebody that seems okay. You know, you don't disapprove of them. Then maybe you move it out to somebody, well, you don't really have any feeling about them and you just, you know, you know, see them at the post office once in a while and then maybe you move it out to somebody you've got some friction with. Somebody where there's not such an easy resonance and, you know, you're not so sure and, you know, you'd rather not. You know, when it gets very strong, you move it out to people who who are sometimes called difficult people. It's always the others who are difficult, isn't it? It's never us but they're called difficult people. Or, you know, if you're really getting down with it, if you're, if you're getting down with it with some of these, these classical teachers, they'll say, enemies. They'll just call it for what it is. Right? <laughs> enemies. So you can see uh, the power of a mind, the concentrated power of a mind that can hold that intention continuously with a broader and broader range of individuals. So that's how how you train it. And and basically it's called um, leveling or balancing or coming to equality in terms of how much goodwill you're really willing to to extend. So you take your place where you 
feel it most readily where it's the strongest, and you work on taking that strength and extending it out and out and out and out and out and out. And you cultivate the the other ones the same way, different phrases. They and they interestingly enough, they all have different body feels. Like the the way co- uh, compassion feels in the body is different from how metta feels in the body. The way uh, so a typical compassion phrase might be. Uh, May your suffering and the the causes of your suffering cease. Or you can invent your own phrase along that theme. Uh, May you have the help and support you need uh, in this trouble. Something like that. And then for uh, empathetic joy or sympathetic joy, the kind of phrase that you might use might be something like... uh, um, may your happiness and success uh, continue and increase. May you always be joyful. Right? And again, we're we're not saying that you know we're magically creating this for another person by saying the these phrases. Although part of this practice can be actually visualizing them, for instance, being happy. Um, but we're cultivating the if it were up to me mind. Now you'll you'll notice if you attempt to, to do these practices that they're real pur- purification practices because <clears throat> the mind is not necessarily completely on board with this. <laughs> Can you guess which one one of these is the most difficult to cultivate? They all have their they all have their challenges. They all have their challenges. With compassion, the one of the challenges is not to fall into pity or despair because as part of doing compassion practice, you're letting your mind register somebody else's suffering. Right? It's registering first and you're responding to it with compassion, but something's registering there that can be difficult. <clears throat> so there's that piece of it. And then in um, empathetic joy, doing that particular practice, guess what the big barrier to that is? Jealousy. Jealousy and envy. Because somebody's got something. Right? So it, really, it can really bring up the comparing mind very strongly. Like, well... Yeah, may you and your new husband and that beautiful wedding <laughs> make a well. <laughs> it's like, oh, he could have done better, you know. <laughs> so you know you have to work with this because the system you, you'll get pushed back with some of these things. So that's the purification process. Is you continue on just like what, the way we practice with the 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 Anapana spot. In those cases, you would continue on generating the phrases and forming the intention, as lo- even if there was some pushback in terms of thoughts and reaction within the system, as long as it wasn't overwhelming or as long as it didn't become predominant or too much of a struggle, you would still keep doing the same thing. You just keep planting those seeds, planting those seeds. Does it lead to an arising of the state in the immediate sense? Sometimes it does, especially if you keep at it uh, in an organized and consistent and committed way. But even if it doesn't lead to the arising of a strong state of metta or a strong state of compassion or a strong state of mudita, now you've planted that intention in the mind stream, which is another way of saying you've created the causes and conditions for that state to arise in the future when circumstances support it doing so. So I won't talk too much about equanimity tonight, but, but that's basically the, the topper of, of the four Brahma Viharas that basically brings in the wisdom piece and says, yes, I may wish all of these things for people, I may want these things for, for all beings, and things come and go, may I accept the coming and going of things. May we all rest in 
stability and balance of mind. So maybe we'll save it for tomorrow. (laughs) He's got a question. So there are ways that you can practice this. On uh, meditation retreats, um, it's common to have some Brahma-vihara practice uh, take place at the at a retreat that's predominantly oriented towards insight, vipassana, mindfulness meditation. It, it's often seen as a complementary and very parallel, uh, parallel complementary practice. And you can see why, because it helps to remind the mind to be kind. So it facilitates the mind being able to have a wholesome, supportive attitude towards its experience when it's actually doing insight practice. But you can also cultivate these states as a standalone practice. They are a completely uh, uh, standalone practice and are often practiced that way. And I, I don't know, Marcy and Pat, if you know, but um, I know that Spirit Rock and IMS sometimes have longer uh, Brahma Vihara or Metta retreats that you can that you can do, and if you if you ever have a chance to do this, particularly if um, you struggle with some of these um, the suffering related to attitudes um, and emotions towards yourself or towards others, uh, it's really good to do. Even in teaching the three month retreat, I'll often. Uh, say to retreatants at a, at a certain point in their practice, you know, it would be good for you now to spend some time doing loving-kindness practice. This will help help balance you, help balance your mind, help strengthen it. I did um, about a month of metta practice um, after I had been working with Pawak Sayadaw for a couple of months on jhana practice. And it was a very powerful and very beautiful experience and probably one of the happiest times of my life can bring great joy, great brightness to the mind and a sense of safety. A sense of safety is part of what arises in the practice of metta and that's a really important thing. So just a a couple of other things now that I've emphasized the importance of having a mind that has a kind of foundational, reliable loyalty to itself, a reliably kind voice. Some of the other concentration practices that you may have heard of or are, the, are things like the 32 parts of the body meditation where you basically uh, create a visual image of various parts of the body like hair of the head, nails, I mean, synovial fluid, bones, I mean, there's all this stuff. Mesonary feces. <laughs> For some reason, they think that's a part of the body. I don't know. It seems more like a byproduct to me, but I guess it's in there, so it counts. Uh, so there's that practice. There's the four elements practice, which has to do with experiencing all body sensations as belonging to either the earth, water, air or fire elements, which is another way of saying, seeing the, uh, what arises in our body and our body ourselves as being composed of uh, impersonal energies that express themselves. Not so, they're not so much a self, it's energies that kind of assemble themselves with it as this field for a while. There are things called casina practices that involve... Uh, generating a visual image of a disc of a certain color uh, that represent the different elements and other things as well, and then learning how to 
hold that visual image and expand it and contract it and do different things with it. Uh, and there are many other concentration practices. They, they all do different things. Not all of them are recommended for all, all people at all times. For instance, you probably wouldn't want to have the decaying corpse meditation if you know, you're know you already in a, st- a state of depression and despair. Uh, that would not be one for you. Uh, something like the, the 32 parts of, of the body meditation might be uh, a really good uh, meditation, especially for somebody who had a very, very strong attachment to the body or a lot of lust, because it kind of breaks it down into its um, constituent parts, and the mind finds less uh, purchase there in terms of, well, well what are you? Are you the, like the hair of the head, or are you like the the nails, or you know, what what's so attractive that you know? You have to, okay. <laughs> so anyway, there's, there's a lot. There are a lot of different practices. You know, some of them are not taught very much. Some of them you would probably need to go to somebody like Pawak Sayadaw to, to really get the, tra- get the trainings. But there's a very broad range of things for people of every, every temperament. The Brahma Viharas and the, the Anapana meditation are generally good for for everybody, beneficial, strongly beneficial for everybody. And if you're very ambitious, but, but I have to tell you this takes some front work, but if you're very ambitious, you could, you, sh- you could go for instruction in the psychic powers. Oh, that's an interesting one. Huh? So, you know, because these deep, deep states of concentration lend themselves to the development of certain capacities, which if trained, are atypical, right? So I'm kind of kidding about the psychic powers, but I, when I said that, I could see, suddenly, <laughs> they're all very interested. <laughs> but, you know. So the mind has an incredible amount of power. Incredible amount of power. So you have, within your capacity the ability to shape the direction of your own evolution to cultivate, to support, to increase the factors of mind, the states of mind that are happy, are beneficial, that are onward leading to further happiness and welfare for yourself and others, and to cease watering supporting uh, the ones that lead in the opposite direction. So the most important piece of it, of course, is the discernment of which is which. And that's, that's the wisdom piece. And the wisdom piece, of course, is what is embedded in the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. It basically lays it out. This is, what, <laughs> this is where you want to go. This is how you can do it. So, my wish for you all is that you um, allow your love and care and concern for yourself to form a deep motivation to seek your own liberation through self-effort. So, let's sit for a minute. May the merit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere.